Yeah, all right, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, those words that we just sang are exactly what we're here to do. We're here to behold you. Um, because, you know, even though you settled our debt with your blood, you're not like the founders of all the other religions that gave instructions about what to do and then died and left it up to them. You're alive, seated on the throne in the heavens. And all through the words and pages of scripture, we have, we have so many different ways that right now we can behold you. Just a minute, we're gonna take out your word and we're gonna see what you did for the apostle Paul. And when we look at, when we look at what you did for him, and since you're alive and on a throne, that's what you do for us. So Lord, I pray that, I pray that the eyes that we have that are connected to our hearts, the deepest things that we long for, the deepest things that we need, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes wider so that we can see and grasp just how holy you are, just how powerful you are, how wonderful you are. So Lord, I pray that as we're listening to the Bible in our hearts, what's happening is just joy and wonder and worship. Would you do that for us by the power of your spirit? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks. All right, you can have a seat. So a few months ago, I was on a little vacation, and that vacation involved me getting on a metal tube called an airplane with, you know, engines on it and flying across the ocean out, out to the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And um, nothing to see here. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we flew out to this island out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And then when the vacation was over, then we had to fly back about halfway between that island and the coast of California. I mean, that we hit some turbulence, man, and that plane started shaking. And to a certain degree, I always feel a little bit of comfort. Like if the plane starts shaking and I'm over in Nebraska, I'm like, hey, there's a lot of bailout plans, you know? But you, it, if we're halfway between Hawaii and California, I don't know how many little landing strips are out there. So, you know, typically if, if I'm feeling a little bit nervous during a flight, what I'm doing is I'm like, I don't watch the other passengers. I'm looking at the pros. I'm like watching the flight attendants. As long as the flight attendants are still serving people Diet Coke, I figure it's, it's going to be okay. So on this flight, you know, the captain comes on. I'm going to have the flight attendants take their seats. Well, I hate when that happens, right? Because <sighs> um, to a certain degree, I have my hope in the professionals that are flying this plane. I want you to imagine what would happen if I was on that plane. Not only did the flight attendants sit down, the captain and the co-pilot open up the cockpit door, walk up and down the aisles and just go, we don't have any chance. We're going to die tonight. And then they sit down in a seat and start weeping loudly. You know, that's time to panic, isn't it? Right? Um, Paul the Apostle, uh, he, he, he had a lot of travels. He was a missionary. Um, in Acts chapter 27, which is where we're going to be today, 276 people are on board a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean. And the situation is so bad, and it's been so bad for so long, that um, competent people, a Roman centurion sent from the, you know, from the capital city 
to, to guard and bring, bring Paul back. I mean, an experienced professional military soldier gets to the point where he has lost command and he has no hope. The, the, the captain, the pilot commanding the ship gets to a point where he and almost all 276 passengers, with the exception of three people, and we're going to see what happens with one of them, almost everybody completely loses hope that anyone is going to survive. What does a Christian do in the middle of a situation where it seems like all hope is lost? What does a, what does a believer like Paul have as a source of hope that goes higher than any thunderheads, that lasts longer than any storm clouds, and goes deeper than any ocean? Christians, we have a source of hope. And what I want to do as we, uh, as we open up our copy of God's Word today, I, I hope that we all grow even more deeply convinced in faith that what we have in Christianity, what we have in Jesus Christ, is an anchor, an actual true anchor to hold us through the storms of life. Maybe this morning you're hitting a storm of life right now. Boy, and I hope today that God's word will encourage you very deeply. So get out your copy of God's word, turn to Acts chapter 27, and I'm going to ask that we stand to our feet. Um, because every time we open up the word of God, this is Jesus Christ speaking to us. And when a great royal king speaks, right, we, we stand to honor him. So Acts chapter 27, uh, I'm going to pick it up at verse 21. Acts chapter 27, verse 21. Here this is God's word. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Just, just what you want to hear, right? When you're like, we're all going to die. And you go, well, I told you not to do this. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong, and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. Fathoms six feet, that's about 120 feet. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea, under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. 
And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. What was Paul? The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is truth. And this is truth that's captured in your word. This is your word. You tell us that every word of scripture is breathed out by God. It's from you. And you tell us that it's good for us. It's good to reproof us, to correct us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Lord, please use this word and feed and nourish and grow and mature our faith so that we believe in you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can sit down. Now, last weekend in the last chapter, Paul had a hearing in front of Herod Agrippa. He was in the capital city of the Roman province of Judea, which was Caesarea. And during that trial, he appealed to Caesar. See, it was the right of a Roman citizen uh, to be able to hear, have their case heard before the, they could basically appeal directly to the Supreme Court and go right to Caesar. And that meant that they would have to be transported to Rome to have their case heard. It might take some time for them to get on the dock for the court, but they could appeal to Caesar. But this also meant that there was going to have to be a military unit that was able to pick up prisoners to be punished and people who had appealed to Caesar, there was going to have to be a transport unit to get people from all over the Roman Empire and get them back to Rome. Rome had an intricate shipping system. We see this right in this ship. Uh, we can see that there's a wheat on board the ship that Paul's on. Because not only was Rome uh, the legal capital of the whole empire, which meant that political uh, people and court cases had to be able to be transported. Prisoners had to be able to be transported securely. And just like in our day, Rome was a massive cosmopolitan city. And that city depended on food storage. The country of Egypt, Alexandria is where this large ship set out from. Alexandria was basically the farm country of the Roman Empire. It was like the Nebraska of, of Rome. It was where all the corn was grown and it was where almost all the wheat was grown. And so this was a huge merchant ship. Sometimes when we think about people who lived in Bible times, we think about everything as old and small. Like there's 10 Roman soldiers and they're like hoisting up a sail. And Luke makes it real clear. This is a complex sailing operation. And he describes it in great detail. So Paul is in Caesarea 
And a Roman um, imperial guard has been sent to pick him up as well as other prisoners from the capital and transport them back to Rome. We find out that this centurion's name is Julius. We should never forget when we're reading Luke and the second book that Luke wrote, the book of Acts, that Luke addressed both of these books to a Roman magistrate named Theophilus, who was likely part of the equestrian political group. He was a high-ranking Roman, and it is not surprising that in both Luke and in the book of Acts, Roman centurions especially are presented as citizens of great courage and great character. And this one is no exception. His name is Julius. So Julius is, is from a special cohort. He's from a special military unit, sort of like a combination of the Navy SEALs, the, uh, the Secret Service, and the military police. And he and his elite unit come to Caesarea, pick up prisoners, of, of which the Apostle Paul is one of those prisoners. And on this voyage back to get to Rome, it's going to involve two ships. The first one is kind of like a local train. Uh, it makes stops in a lot of the port towns. It's not built for the open seas, but it is built to bounce from coast to coast. And so Paul and Julius and the other prisoners get on this small boat and bounce until they get to a town called Myra. And in Myra, Julius uh, takes the prisoners and finds another ship. This one, a large ship. This one, a ship that's made for the open seas. And this ship is going to head, uh, take these guys back to Rome. But before we get there, in the, earlier in this chapter, in verse 27, Luke tells us that Paul, even though he's a prisoner, he's not traveling by himself. In the first few verses, first of all, Luke is describing everything that's happening on this voyage with the pronoun we, which means Luke is traveling with Paul. Not only is Luke traveling with Paul, Luke tells us in the first few verses of chapter 27 that another loyal companion named Aristarchus is traveling with him. Now, let me ask you a question. How is it, the person, how is it that a man who's under arrest is able to be transported and to travel to his trial, even though he's, uh, even though he's under arrest, how is it that his friends are able to travel with him? Now, there's two things that are relevant facts here. The first off is the Apostle Paul is a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens enjoyed privileges that other citizens did not. So because uh, he was in prison and because he was still awaiting a verdict of a trial, he maintained certain rights, and he maintained a certain amount of honor as a Roman citizen. But almost every commentator reading this section of Scripture tells us exactly how Luke and Aristarchus could be companions with him. Um, almost all the commentators say that, um, that what happened was both Luke and Aristarchus committed themselves to, uh, to, to be servants of the Apostle Paul, to be counted as his slaves. Because if a Roman citizen was going to be traveling, even traveling with trial, his slaves and servants would be able to travel with him. They were considered part of his property. Just think about the kind of friendship and devotion a guy named Luke and a guy named Aristarchus would have to have to the Apostle Paul. Because not only would Paul then be imprisoned in Rome, who would be imprisoned along with him? Aristarchus and Luke, just think of the deep friendship and loyalty that was there. See, we can't forget, if you've been a Christian for a while and we read the book of Acts or read the New Testament, I mean, 
Paul is an astoundingly courageous figure, isn't he? Don't you always find Paul doing things that you're like, I don't think that I could do that. But he's not a lone superhero. He does have a very personal individual calling. When Jesus Christ called him on the road to Damascus, he said, I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer for me. And in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul would talk about what his ministry was like. He would talk about all the times that he had been hated in every city that he went to. He talked about all the times that he had been beaten. Did, did you know that when he wrote 2 Corinthians, it was before he got on this ship? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells us that he had been shipwrecked three times already. This is his fourth ocean disaster. You know what they say, fool me once, you know? In 2 Corinthians, on one of those, he said that for an entire day and for an entire night, he was adrift out at sea. Why? Why did he keep getting on a ship? Why did he keep, why did he keep putting himself right in danger's way? Why? Because he was personally called by Jesus Christ to this ministry. And he accepted it. He did. He had an individual personal call. But he did not do this by himself. When Jesus Christ gave him a very difficult ministry, a very difficult call. And what you find all through the Gospels is Jesus Christ provided deep, encouraging, loyal, uplifting, heart level friendships. Paul and Luke and Aristarchus got on this ship and headed out on a voyage, heading to prison. They, those two looked at Paul and said, we will share your fate. What happens to you is going to happen to us. Where do you think that they would get an idea like that? You know? So not only did Jesus Christ personally call Paul to this ministry, Jesus Christ also personally gave him the encouragement that he needed exactly the right way and exactly the right time. So Paul had two deeply loyal friends who traveled on this voyage with him. At the first stop, Julius the Roman centurion allowed Paul to travel into town in their first port town to spend time with the Christians. And it says that those Christians ministered to his needs. Likely to pray for him, to care for him, to love him to encourage him. It took a lot of courage to live the life that Paul did. It took a lot of courage to face the things that he faced. And God consistently provided courage. Some of that courage coming through friends. Have you, you ever been in a situation where you were like, I don't know if I can do this. And a loyal, devoted Christian brother or sister came up right next to you, said, I, I can't carry that for you. That's not mine. It's yours to carry. But I want you to know I'm going to get right behind you. I'm going to be right by your side. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to send you a scripture verse. You ever had that happen? We really do. The Bible says that we are supposed to encourage each other. And this is a huge part about being part of a local congregation, not just watching a worship service online or only coming on Sunday. Certainly, it's wonderful for you to come on Sunday, for us to sing, for us to open up God's word. But you know that there's lots of things that we can't do with each other when we're just sitting next to each other. And one of those is, I can't know what you're going through. I mean, I can come stand down here and say hi to some of you, and you can tell me and I can pray for you. But you know that Christianity is not meant to be traveled alone. If, if a person with the skills, the calling, the courage, the training, the moral fortitude that Paul had, if he needed friends to encourage him, what do you think that means for me and you? You know, little Christian pipsqueaks like me and you. If a giant like Paul needed fellowship, you and I do too. Man, if, you're, if you have not yet kind of 
you know, gone to a Bible study and sat around a table and opened up and said, I, I need those kind of relationships. Let me just urge you. Follow the Apostle Paul's example and weave yourself into risky, vulnerable friendships. Give yourself to them. Christianity is a brotherhood. It is a sisterhood. It is. We need those kind of relationships. But the Apostle Paul didn't just need encouragement and in the form of fellowship and friendships. The, so they get onto a larger ship that's going to head out in the Mediterranean. And in this larger ship, they, they set out for a port. And they, they port in a little town called Fairhaven. And they port in Fairhaven. And there's a little meeting to make a decision about what to do because they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. On one hand, Fairhaven is not, it's, it's a port that does not have a lot of environmental protections around it. And that means that the storms that are going to blow through, and they're going to blow through because this is the fall, they're at a time of year where travel typically is forbidden by ship. They're, they're right up against the edge of it. They've got almost no time left in the sailing season, but they're in a port that is not going to provide them protection. So the, the uh, Roman centurion Julius calls a little meeting with the captain, the pilot of the ship, and the owner of the ship, and Paul. Um, now, we can't forget, of those four people, it is pretty likely that Paul has logged more miles on the ocean than anybody else has, and he's seen it go badly three times. If somebody around that meeting is like, hey, guys, I don't think we should go for it here, <laughs> just you know, wouldn't you listen to that advice? Uh, but they don't. The pilot and the owner of the ship urge the centurion, let's go. And... What they say is, we're going to point the ship towards Phoenix, which is another port, and then we're going to hope to get there. <laughs> um, can't you imagine me being on the plane? This is your captain speaking. We're having some turbulence. I, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to point the nose towards California and uh, hope to see you there. <laughs> Paul says, this is a bad idea. We ought not do this. And, but the centurion says, no, we're going to move on. Now, um, in just a minute, we're going to hit one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. It's called the sovereignty of God. Paul advised them not to go, and yet they went anyway. And we're going to see as the rest of the story unfolds, even the centurion not listening to the advice of Paul, even that is a part of the plan that's here. But they don't listen to, they don't listen to Paul's advice. And they head out, and it gets bad fast. I mean, the storm is bad. And they do about everything that they could do. Uh, he describes it. They take the lifeboat, you know, the little dinghy, the thing that's there to at least, they can abandon the freight, and some of them could at least save their lives. Typically, a lifeboat like that, would, uh, it would be towed alongside of the boat. But the storm is so bad that they take that boat, they bring it up into the ship, and they tie it down. That's step one. Second thing that they do is they take large uh, tie straps and they basically strap the ship together all the way around to try to hold the ship together because of the storm. Uh, now, after this, uh, not only do they do that, but they start jettisoning, jettisoning cargo. They start sending cargo overboard and they even send some of their equipment overboard. And Paul tells us that during this time, they're losing hope slowly. He tells us that for 14 days they didn't eat. 
And it's not because all the food was overboard because one of the last things that Paul does is they have a big meal right to re-energize them so that they could swim to shore. It's not because they don't have food. And you know what this is like. What happens to your appetite when you lose hope? What happens to your appetite when you, I mean, they lose, first they lose hope that they're ever going to get saved and they lose their appetite and they lose their courage and they lose their faith. I mean, the situation is dire. They've done everything that they could do and it's been 14 days and they look up at the sky and they can't see the moon and they can't see the stars. There is no end to the storm in sight. Let me ask a question. Have you ever been there? You ever been to the point where you're like, I've done everything I could do and for a little while you had hope. Like, hey, we're going we're gonna to tie this thing together and that's going to get us through and then the storm's going to break. And then it doesn't. And then a couple more days and then, you, you know, you do something else. And you keep doing what you can do, always thinking, well, this thing is going to really get me through. And then when you get to the end of it and you go, I've done everything that I can do and this storm is too big and there's nothing I can do. It's a good thing for us to think about. I want to ask you the question right here at this point in the sermon. Where's your hope? You know, I told you that when I'm on a plane, I am tempted to put some of my hope in those flight attendants. As long as the flight attendants are up, I feel like I'm good. And when they sit down, my heart melts, right? But at the end of the day, when I'm sitting on that airplane, who's my hope really in? Who is the real pilot of that flight for me? Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. Where's your hope? Is there any way that in your own life, if I ask you the question, why are things going to go, why are things going to be okay in your life? However, whatever you would answer that question, you'd be like, well, things are going to be okay for me because you know what? My 401k is doing real good right now. I know other people's are going nuts, but I made a good choice and I'm doing if I got plenty of money in the bank. And you and I both know there are situations in your life that you can hit. It does not matter how much money you have. Money ain't going to get you through that. There's... Hundreds of other things that we can look at and say, as long as I have that, I'm going to be okay. But see, Paul is in the same boat. He's in the same boat and he's in the same storm. And while they're all melting with fear, depressed, not eating, with no courage, Paul has something else. And he, he tells everybody on the crew that something happened to him. Not only did Jesus Christ provide friends, fellowship to strengthen him. Jesus Christ personally encouraged him right, in the, right into his heart with a, with a reminder. No, no real new information. This is the third time that this has happened to him. Uh, once, when, once when he was in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he was discouraged. People were not responding. People were hating him and reviling him. He's like, I'm doing what God told me to do in preaching this message, and people are not responding. He was discouraged. And the Lord showed up and talked to him and said, don't be discouraged. I have many people in this town. You're going to be successful because I have a plan in spite of what it looks like. Don't base your hope on what it looks like. Base your hope on me. I've got a plan. Then Paul was in Jerusalem just a couple of chapters ago and got beaten almost to death. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Jesus appeared to him that night and said, don't be afraid. You're going you're gonna to go to Rome and you're going to testify before Caesar. Don't look at the circumstances. The circumstances look like you're not going to make it out of here. I got you. I've got a plan. 
And now after 14 days in this ship, and he's already been in three shipwrecks, it looks like this is going to be his last one. And an angel of the Lord comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid. You are going to testify in Rome. You're going to make it to Rome. That's in the plan. And not only are you going to make it, but behold, everybody on the ship, they're, they're going to make it with you. Which is, which is good evidence that the Apostle Paul was not just praying for his own safety. He was praying for the people that were on the boat with him. He was praying for the people who were holding him in custody. And so Paul gets up in front of everybody. When everybody's lost hope, Paul stands up in front of all of them and says, take heart. God spoke to me and he told me, and he tells us in great detail. He says, um, not only is no one going to die, no one is going to lose any hair on the swim from this boat to the shore. I mean, that's a pretty bold promise, isn't it? No one's going to lose a hair on this thing, but the ship is going to get trashed. Why? Because this God told Paul, this is the plan. Now, so the, the Apostle Paul, when he starts off and he's going to give them some courage, he starts in a place that you and I might not. He reminds everybody, hey guys, remember before we got into this thing, we had a little meeting to make a decision, should we sail or should we not? And don't you remember the vote was uh, three to one? Remember you three voted to go? How's that working for us right now? Remember, I voted not to. If we could go back and redo this, would we listen to you three or should we listen to me? Let's revisit this for a minute. They go, okay. And the reason he does this is not, it's not to embarrass them, not to prove himself to be right. The reason he does this is to say, you didn't listen to me before, but listen to me now. God has got a plan. All of us are going to live. No one's going to lose a hair. We're, but the ship is going to get run aground on some island. It's like, I got some specific information about hair. I'm not sure which island, but just trust me. Go with me. An angel told me this, right? Um, okay, here's, here is a principle. In this situation where nobody else has any courage or faith or hope, did you notice that Paul's not in charge of this? He's not in command of the ship. He's not the owner of the ship. He's not the pilot of the ship. He's also not the centurion. All three of those people had positions of legitimate official authority. They had name badges and a plate on, you know, a little plate on their office. I'm in charge, you know, I'm in charge of this area. The apostle Paul is not in charge of anything on this ship, except in the time of despair, who is the leader? The leader in this situation is the one who knows God and knows his word. And he becomes the man to give everybody courage. And he stands up and says, this is what God said. This is what God said is going to happen. Now let's get some food, huh? And they, he takes and he breaks bread and they eat food and they eat that food to get strength because they're going to have something to do. And see, here's something that oftentimes we can get confused about. We, we know at the end of the chapter, I read it already, everybody, the... The ship gets run aground. Some of them swim to shore. Some of them take a piece of the boat and get to shore. How many people made it to shore and didn't die in the shipwreck? How many people? All of them, right? Everybody survived. Why? Is it because that was God's plan? Absolutely. 
I mean, before this event even happened, Paul knew you have to make it to Rome. You were going to testify before Caesar. It, it is in the plan. This is what the Bible calls the doctrine of providence, the sovereignty of God. Over, over 200, every, every single hair of 276 people's heads, God had a plan for all of their hairs. God has a plan for every single detail. This is the Bible's teaching. Before the foundation of the world, God has a plan, everything is in the plan, and everything is going according to plan. But here's what can sometimes happen for those of us that believe in the sovereignty of God. We can say, God's got a plan. Do whatever you want, right? But do we find everybody, once Paul says, everybody's going to be fine, no one's going to die. The fact that God has a plan, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, instead of leading people to taking no action, don't you see everybody taking the action that they need to take in order to accomplish God's plan? He tells them to eat something. Why do they need to eat something? Because they haven't eaten for 14 days and they're going to have to swim for their lives in just a minute. Apostle Paul takes over as a good leader. The sovereignty of God says we're going to be fine. Now eat because you're going to have to swim. Then I don't know if you noticed it, but did you notice that the sailing crew on the ship, they decided that they, were, they weren't really going to hang out to see if the angel was right or if Paul was crazy. They're like, you guys can go with that angel plan. We're going to get the dinghy, the lifeboat. We're, they, and they told everybody else, we're going to go take care of some anchors down here. Julius Century and Paul, we're, we're just going to go do anchors down here. And then they go down to do the anchors, pretend to do the anchors, and then what do they do? They get in the lifeboat to take off. Now Paul sees this happening. What does Paul do? Does he say, hey, God's got a plan and he's sovereign, so we're just going to sit here. What does he do? Julius, you're in charge. If the sailors leave the ship, who do you think is going to steer the ship and point it at the island? Those guys can't leave because God's plan needs those guys to drive this ship. And what does Julius do? They cut the rope, bring the guys back on board, and say, point the ship right at that island right there. And they do. And then right at the very end, right when the, the ship is run aground, the soldiers have a little problem. Because in Roman law, if a prisoner escapes on your watch, you accept the consequence, the legal consequence of the convict. And so the Roman soldiers look at this and say, they, they're not going to do something wrong. They say, we're going to do what's lawful. I'm not going to die. Which tells us that some of the prisoners that were traveling with Paul were probably capital offenders were going to get executed in Rome. And they said, it's either them or me. And to do, to do their lawful duty, they were going to have to kill the prisoners. Paul's been shipwrecked. Three times, this is the fourth time. Without food for 14 days. I mean, on the verge of death. Now it seems God, an angel shows up and now they're going to survive. And really the last thing that's going to happen is now Paul's going to get killed on the final hundred yard swim from the boat to the shore. And the centurion Julius does he takes the action that he ought to take. He tells the centurions, that's not what we're going to do. And 276 people make it to the shore along with all of their hair. Why? One, because God's plan includes everything. And then two, because God's plan unfolds through our own choices, the things that we do, the things that we decide to do. Um, here's what I'm saying. And then I'll wrap up. 
You know, this doctrine that God has a plan, it goes all the way down, you know. It's not just about how 276 people land on a ship or about what town you're going to live in or about what job you should take. God does have a plan for every single one of those things. Do you believe that? It's also true about salvation. I mean, at the end of the day, this story about the ship is a story about being saved from a shipwreck. And the Bible's teaching is really clear. Before the foundation of the world, there is an exact number of people who are chosen for salvation. It's true. There's a book, and that book has names written. And not one person who God has planned salvation for will miss it. You can't add to that number, and you can't take away from that number. That number of people is absolutely, completely fixed. God's sovereignty. But does that mean that a church like ours should sit back and go, hey, if God's already got it all solved, we're not going to do anything. I'm not going to reach out to uh, unbelieving people. I'm not going to preach and share the gospel because God's got a plan and I'm just going to sit back and watch it unfold. Is that what we see Paul doing? I mean, Paul who teaches the sovereignty of God. You know, those he foreknew, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified, right? The Apostle Paul, who teaches this, who believes it, if you look at his own life, doesn't he say, I will do anything to bring the gospel to people? I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. But when we hold together the doctrine that God, man, God has a plan and everything is going according to plan, no matter what the circumstances look like, that is an anchor for our hope. And God's plan happens because we take out God's commands. And we listen to what it says. Every single one of us is in the exact same position as all the sailors on that boat. Because Paul was telling, he was, he was telling, issuing them commands. This is what God's telling you to do. And don't, now, now we're in a worse position because they only had one thing that Paul told them what to do. We've got books, you, you and I have Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Timothy and Titus. We have all kinds of things that Paul tells us. This is what you got to do. We should listen to Paul about what he teaches about God's sovereignty and about what it means for us to take God's words and to put them into practice right where we are, right where we are. All right, let me ask you to stand to your feet. I'm going to close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace in our lives. Lord, thank you that this, what we just um, looked at today, the, this time during these couple weeks where Paul was on this ship blown way off course, and it looked like everything was out of control. Um, what we learn from this, what we're taught by this, is this, it's not true. That everything for you was going, going right according to your plan and you had the entire situation under your control. Lord, I pray for anybody that's here uh, today and the circumstances of their life just seem like they're running out of control. And it seems like the wind is just blowing them all over the place. And they're looking up in the sky and they just can't see when there's going to be an end to it. Heavenly Father, I pray that, you know, it's in times like that that the, the truth that you hold all things in your control, that's a time when that can be such a comfort for us. And I pray like Paul had, that that message isn't just a doctrine that I'm talking about but that through your Holy Spirit, you would take the truth of what you've said in your word and you would speak it right into the hearts of the people who need it. 
You showed up to Paul and had a personal and intimate conversation. You reminded him of your word. And you put that message right into his heart where he needed it. And he took that courage and then he rose to the challenge and he did exactly what your plan required him to do. I pray that same thing would happen to us. And Lord, the most important thing that I think about right now is, Lord, anybody here who's thinking about some of what we were singing about today, about what it means to deal with Christ, what it means that his payment for our sin is what makes us right, that there is a book. And if our name is not in that book, if we do not come to Christ, if we do not exercise faith, take the gift of faith that you give us and reach out and place that trust in Christ for our salvation, if that does not happen to us, then there isn't salvation. Lord, I pray anybody here who's unsure about where they are, whether their name is in the book, whether they're in the boat with Christ, the one that saves. Lord, I pray that even right now your Holy Spirit would be working in their hearts, opening them up, giving them faith, and they're using that faith to reach out and believe. Lord, I pray that for all of us, we would leave today with the true sense that when we believe your word, when we have faith, when we receive what it is that you teach us, it's an anchor and it's a rock underneath our feet. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.